This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of February 1st, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 311 of Defender Radio. Whenever we talk compassionate conservation, ethics, the emotions of wildlife, or the benefits of drinking single malt scotch through a Twizzler, there's really only one man to call, Dr. Mark Beckoff. And fortunately for us at the Fur Bearers, Mark has been a good sport and chatted with us regularly here on Defender Radio. Late last week, we connected with the best-selling author, blogger, and professor emeritus of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Colorado, and nothing was left off the table. From the trophy hunt in British Columbia to his latest books, and from the quote-unquote management of wolves and coyotes in Ontario, to how important it is for scientists to become advocates, we covered it all. So with no further digression, let's get started. Let's dive in. It's been almost a year since we spoke last. At that time, we were talking largely about your your most recent book about compassionate conservation. What have you been doing for the last year? Where have you been? What have you seen? <laughs> Where have I been? I've been in Boulder. I'm, I'm not really going to travel much. We, um, Jessica Pierce and I um, just finished a book called Born Free with a question mark compassion for animals in the Anthropocene that'll be out early next year. Um, and I'm working on a book on dog behavior. Well, that's going to be exciting. Is, is this based on your research with uh, coyotes or is it um, directed more at domestic dogs and uh, other science? No, it's going to be more on domestic dog behavior and then the behavior of people at dog parks. I'm really excited about it. I, um, I have a pretty good outline going and I'm working on it. Um, and, you know, just been really busy talking about compassionate conservation. It's really gotten a lot of traction recently. Um, actually, it's really exciting because so many people seem to be attracted to the notion of, you know, first do no harm and then the lives of individuals matter. And that's the whole argument in our new book that animal welfare has I mean it's done some good but in the end it can't do enough because it presupposes that animals can be used for human purposes. Mm. Well, and that's that's very much a debate that's been raging. Um, I, I think probably since the '60s or '70s when the animal rights movement kind of got going in in full steam, but it still comes up almost daily in what we do. Uh, as you know, our mandate is very specific to fur-bearing animals in the wild and confinement, but no matter what we're talking about, we have someone who sort of takes it the next step and says, well, if you really want to help animals, what you need to do is, and, and it's pretty much an argument for either veganism, uh, animal liberation, or one of the other sort of more lifestyle extremes. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, we're very careful to say that it's that the position, so what we're doing to back up is we're arguing to replace the science of animal welfare with the science of animal well-being. And that's where, when we talk about the science of animal well-being, that's where we factor in first do no harm 
and the lives of individual animals matter. And those are the two mandates, if you will, of compassion and conservation. Um, you know, we're just really arguing that we really need to focus on each and every individual. And it's not rights-based. I mean, I guess one could look at it that way, but it's not saying that, you know, these animals have a right to this or that. It's more saying that we are obligated to protect every individual and we shouldn't be playing the numbers game like, well, there's, a, you know, thousands of rats, so it's okay to kill one um, because that doesn't take into account the individual rat, if you will, who, you know, we're killing. So it's, it's just saying that we need to really change our ways. It's a, it's a real paradigm shift. And what I love about it is it can apply to animals. And we write, each chapter focuses on animals in different venues. So it's from food animals to lab animals to um, animals in entertainment to pets to wild animals. And the reason we call it Born Free with a question mark is, as you well know, that wild animals are not necessarily free. Yeah, and that is something that we've been talking a lot about in Canada, and I'm sure you're familiar with, is uh, tr two two subjects, and I'd love for you to weigh in on the ideas. I won't get into specifics, but one is trophy hunting in British Columbia. That's been international news of grizzly bears, um, and it's clear across the board People in British Columbia are opposed to this. And the government tries to say, well, that's just the people in Vancouver, in the big city, who don't know what it's like. But polling suggests that people in rural areas, in the interior, in the coastal areas, are equally, if not more, opposed to trophy hunting of grizzly bears. Um, and, and I should factor that by saying most of the respondents to these polls indicate they're not against hunting, they're not against consuming animals, they're simply against trophy hunting. But the, the biggest argument continues to be that it's sustainable, that, well, it's okay that we go and do this because we're not hurting the population. Right. I mean, there's a lot of layers there. Number one, you know, the hunters I know are uniformly against trophy hunting. I call it trophy murder. I mean, that's really what it is. Um, they just really despise trophy hunting. Um, it's wrong to conflate it with, you know, veganism and vegetarianism because that's not the argument. You know, I mean, people like to, people like to say, oh, well, you're just a vegan. We are just a vegetarian. So you're against this. No, once again, it goes beyond that. And, you know, the sustainability issue is just ridiculous. You know, there's study after study after study showing that trophy hunting doesn't really do anything for conservation. Um, and it's not sustainable in many ways. I mean, African lions are, you know, imperiled because of trophy hunting. And I just read something about, you know, just... Um, Oh, I guess it happened in, that's true. It's, um, I posted it to our group. It deals with that bear 366 in Yellowstone, where actually now administrators for Yellowstone National Park are really, you know, trying to protect the grizzlies. You know, we hope it's not too little too late, but what we really need to do is have some proactive thinking here too. You know, just say, look, obviously if, if you can just go out and kill animals, you know, very few people are going to listen and say, well, you can only kill, you know, males or you can't kill females with young, blah, 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 blah. We know that people do. And in fact, 
Yellowstone National Park killed <clears throat> Blaze last year and she left two cubs orphaned. Yeah, I recall that. And I think that was actually around the last time we spoke, too, uh, uh, incidentally. And the, the other one that's come up uh, in British Columbia, in Ontario, where I am, and uh, I'm quite certain right across the United States, is the calling of wolves and coyotes. Um, I, I am profoundly saddened that this is still a, an issue. Uh, when I started into the animal stuff, and when you and I first spoke several years ago about coyote behavior, uh, I... I I couldn't fathom that this was a thing and that it's still going on. And, and I know you've been at this a lot longer than me, so I can't imagine how you feel about it. But there's in BC, they're saying we have to kill wolves to protect the uh, uh, Smoky Mountain Caribou uh, uh, Mountain Caribou herd, which is endangered. Uh, although all of the studies say, you know what, it's because of the uh, resource extraction. It's creating roads, cutting back all of this that's created this problem, not the wolves. And then in Ontario now. Uh, the, the moose hunters have gotten together and said, you know what, the moose populations are declining and the government's telling us to stop hunting moose as often. So what we're saying is we need to go kill wolves and coyotes now to protect the moose so we can go hunt more moose. Um, right, right. What, you know, what they're basically saying is, is that we need, you know, we need to basically kill animals so humans can kill animals. And in Colorado, there was a proposal by the Colorado divisions of parks and what is it called parks and wildlife to kill mountain lions to increase the numbers of deer for hunters and they actually pulled that plan. Um, I played some role in it as well as other people. So when you really think of the reasoning, it's insane. You're going to kill a predator to save prey who then are killed by humans. And really what it comes down to, I don't know the situation in Canada, but I can't imagine it's that different. It's, it's just driven by money because they get a lot of money from hunting and fishing licenses. Yep. And, yeah, and it's, 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 and you cannot avoid the fact that in, in particular in Northern Ontario, uh, it, it is good for the economy because people travel there and otherwise frequently wouldn't travel there. They spend money in these small towns um, and it, it does pump millions of dollars into that economy, but that's the problem is the government never says that's why we're doing it. Oh no, they can't. That's, that's a happy coincidence. Well, that's because so many people are married to science and I'm not saying that science isn't good, but what I am saying is, is that they, they're married to the science and then these, you know, agencies and people who want to kill, you know, to trophy hunting and kill predators appeal to the science, but if they really appeal to the science, then they couldn't justify what they're doing. Well, and that is something, and this is, I struggle with this almost daily as I read and write about these issues. Um, and it's, it's the concept that while scientifically it's sustainable, uh, scientifically, you know, we, we need to manage because that's what's the books have shown. We've always done. And as soon as you say, yes, but ethically or emotionally, they say, well, there you go. You're not being scientific. How do we convey the very idea that conservation, science, and ethics are all part of the same thread? <laughs> well, I think we convey it the way we are. You're doing it. I'm doing it. A lot of people are doing it by just putting out the arguments, making them accessible to non-scientists and the public because really like you said i mean it's you know 
it's amazing how when you really poll people, you know, once again, even hunters, they are really against trophy hunting. It's just, it's just has to be a nonstop deluge, if you will, of the media with the facts in a indigestible form. You know, people, people don't go read the science. I mean, even the scientists often don't. So it's doing interviews, it's writing popular essays, it's writing books, it's giving talks and talking to people in a very accessible and passionate way. You know, there's, in all honesty, there's not that many people anymore with whom I have contact who would argue that, you know, we need to be objective and unemotional because, or we can't be, um, you know, advocates because we're all advocates. When I was in Australia giving a talk, I was, you know, talking about how they shouldn't be killing kangaroos the way they do, you know, just recreational hunting, tailgating parties. And a guy in the audience said, well, you're a scientist. You shouldn't be an advocate. And I said, oh, well, you're a scientist and you're an advocate. The difference is I'm advocating not to kill the um, kangaroos and you're advocating to kill them. And it got really silent. And I don't mean that to be, you know, a jerk. It's just that when you for or against something, you are an advocate on one side or another. And in my humble opinion, scientists who are doing the on-ground work have to be advocates. They just, they have to be because they're the people, once again, to whom others look and they're the people to whom agencies should look. And, you know, in, in the United States, we have wildlife services who doesn't listen to anyone. They just go out and kill animals because they think that's the thing to do. And as I've written, some of them probably just enjoy killing the animals. Let's face it. If you didn't like doing it, why would you do it? Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. Um, and uh, we've certainly heard horror stories about wildlife services over the years. And I know uh, some of the groups you're involved with, such as uh, Project Coyote, have really done an excellent job in exposing some of their policies and practices. Uh, I know the Sacramento Bee also did a, an excellent expose on them uh, last year, I believe it was. Um, yeah, Tom Nutson. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, once again, there's a good example. There's an excellent example when you say what can be done. What can be done is just doing what Knudsen and others are doing, and it's just keep putting it out there, attracting the attention of, you know, politicians who have a say in things. Um, there's a senator from Halifax who's, I've been working with him some, trying to put in legislation, making it illegal to keep and breed cetaceans in captivity. Those are the people you need to get to because, because you know, in all honesty, if 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 you don't get the policymakers and people who have some power, nothing's going to get done. That is very true. And I, I wanted to finish off just asking you, um, we, you and I have talked about compassionate conservation, and I think the case for it is quite clear. And in the broad sense, how we achieve it is, as you've said, by talking, writing, uh, uh, you know, presenting the idea and just getting it out there. But in a more practical sense, how would we look at policy evolving? So if we've got the current model of wildlife management, which is to uh, reduce the number of predators, to increase the number of game species, so in turn they can be hunted, and on the same side, put in place uh, rather draconian measures to reduce certain prey species to prevent them from 
uh, ruining crops and other predators from conflicting with the uh, livestock. Like, how do we take those kinds of policies and step by step move them towards compassionate conservation? What would that model look like? Um, well, <laughs> that's I'm not sure I or anyone has one answer. But the model would look at, once again, getting back to the fact that you're killing sentient beings. You know, one of the examples I use with people, and it really gets the discussion going, is would, I ask them, would you do it to your dog? So they'll say, well, why would you ask that? And I'll say, well, my dog is no, you know, your dog, sorry, a coyote, for example, or a bear is no less sentient than your dog. And they'll go, well, you know, we have a special relationship with dogs. And that's why I've been writing a lot about what I call this personal rewilding in my book, Rewilding Our Hearts. And that is we need to reconnect and we need to become re-enchanted with other nature. And we need to realize that we're killing beings who really care about what happens to them. One mechanism, which I'm really thrilled about, is I get emails constantly, I mean, many a week, not only from graduate students doing projects in say, conservation behavior and behavioral ecology, but from undergrads, high school, and middle school students, young kids, 13, 14, who want to go on into conservation. And some of them, even at that young age, are already reading about compassion and conservation. So once again, I think part of it will come from current, if you will, and future researchers you know, the other is just going to come when people realize that the best science comes from science that is motivated by compassion for the animals who are being studied. We already know that a lot of the databases that we have um, come from stressed animals. They're trapped, they're marked, they're harassed, um, they're persecuted, they may be from a hunted population. And so very slowly... People, I always tell people that not maybe it's quite as a glacier moving, but it might be the same speed as the loss of glaciers due to climate change. Um, we are going to change the practice of science. And I actually think that over the next couple of decades, we're going to see a complete revolution in the practice of science, realizing that we need to study animals who are as uninfluenced by humans as possible to really get a handle on say their reproductive biology and get a handle on questions about whether certain practices are sustainable. People just throw that word around like, you know, like popcorn. And um, so I think that that's where it's gonna happen. It's not gonna be fast, but I'm really convinced that in, you know, the future and maybe the near future, we're gonna see a paradigm shift that's going to benefit the animals. Well, and briefly, just to, to, to finish off, as you say that, I wonder, are you okay with that? Are you okay with knowing today won't be the day and tomorrow won't be the day? And then every day that isn't the day, it changes. More animals die. There, there is continuing suffering. Is that something that you have somehow come to terms with yourself, <laughs> that today's not the day, but it's coming? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful. That's just the way I am because I meet people all the time who are really trying, working really hard to make a difference for other animals. Well, I wish the change would come as we're talking, but motivated and long-term changes sometimes take time. 
And I'm seeing some of my science colleagues who are changing their ways, they're changing their methods of study, they're realizing that some of what they've been doing has not been good for the animals. I'm not criticizing them. I, I, I really want to be firm here that I don't think you get any traction by criticizing people, by ad hominem um, arguments. I always say that you know you can argue and attack the position, but not the person. And I'm seeing that, and that's part of compassionate conservation. I mean, compassionate conservation is compassion not only for non-human animals, but human animals. So the answer to your question is, I wish it would go faster, but the real answer is that it takes people time to change. People have their careers wrapped up in paradigm science. And once again, I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just this is what they've been doing, and this is what they're going to do. But I see over time, like there's the Center for Compassion and Conservation at the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia. And if you go to their website, you will see how they've reached into political and economic markets, for example. So there, that the, the Center for Compassion and Conservation in Sydney is a great example. It's run by a guy named Dan Ramp, with whom I've written some articles on compassion and conservation. Um, Journals are open. We just had a really big article last year in the journal Bioscience, and we have another article that's just appeared in Conservation Biology with the word compassion in the title. You wouldn't have imagined that a decade ago. <laughs> to learn more about Dr. Mark Beckoff, visit his website at markbeckoff.com or check out his Psychology Today blog. That's the show for this week, folks. I can't thank Mark enough for sharing his time with us again and hope all of you take some time to read some of his incredible books. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.